Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this beautiful morning, and we thank You for the opportunity together as Your people on this Lord's Day. We thank You for this time that You've given us uh, to be able to uh, dig into the theology of Your historic church and coming out of the Reformation, and we thank You uh, for the blessing of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so we pray today that You would guide and direct us by Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, continuing with our study on the the Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, uh, today we are at question 20. Uh, In fact, we'll look at today, Lord willing, question 20, 21, 22, and 23, although really question 23 is going to launch us into next week. Um, We're going to spend most of our time today, hopefully, Uh, in discussion on question 21, but I want to start with question 22. Now, I know I'm a broken record. Just let me remind you that the Heidelberg Catechism is unique and that it is building on itself. While we do see that in some of the later catechisms, uh, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism, they will at some times build upon the previous questions. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it's all linked together. So it is as if uh, while uh, the children are being taught this for the first time, it's just one after another after another. Uh, and so when we break it down the way that we have, uh, and as they have broken it down for us by what they call Lord's Day breaks or today Lord's Day 7, you got to remember what we looked at last week. Um, and so as you're thinking about that, I know that was a whole week ago, let's look at question 20 here. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? Okay, pause there. You've already looked at it. You know the answer's no. And we're going to hear the explanation of it. But before you continue reading that answer, let's understand the setting. So what we have looked at is we have looked at the, the, the truth that all are dead in their sins and trespasses. We all have a sin nature that we have inherited. We have inherited that from one man by virtue of the seed of Adam. We are all sinners by nature, evidenced by thought, word, indeed, so forth and so on. So the rationale of this question is, if that is the case with our sin nature, if we are sinners by nature because of what Adam has done, are we then all saved, and by all I mean every single one of the descendants of Adam, is everyone saved by virtue of the work of Christ? The second Adam. And if before you read the answer, if you pause there for just a second, you might say, well, huh. I mean, Christ's death upon the cross was, was undoubtedly powerful. We've looked at the fact that He is fully God and fully man. And so, huh, well, that, that, that has a, a ring of logic to it, doesn't it? Now let's look at the answer. No. Only those that are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. That's a really good answer. Only those who are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. 
So let's ask this question. Is God's love so great that all are saved? And before you answer that, let's think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Is, is God's love so great that all could be saved? Another way of asking this, is God's love so powerful that all could be saved? Yeah. So, is the efficacy, meaning the, the, the powerful result of, is the efficacy of Christ's atoning death so great that all are saved? Yeah, and so that, that's, that's a, a helpful distinction there. As some will make it, and, and this is a discussion that we're enjoying here on Sunday School. This is a discussion that if you went to, uh, to seminary and it was on this topic, this would be a debate around the class. So what is the power of Christ's death upon the cross? Was Christ's death so powerful that all could be saved? Yes, but are all saved through the power of His death. That's the distinction. And the answer is, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Remember what Jesus said. And this is incidentally, I know in the past that we have studied the canons of Dort. Um, in our past study on the canons of Dort, uh, we have touched on this actually quite a bit, and the pushback against Pelagianism and the idea of, of there being some sort of, of road to universalism. But Jesus was quite clear, wasn't He? He said, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And yes, Yes, uh, it, it, it is, although that's not how they're approaching it here. So if you couldn't hear uh, uh, Phil, he said, is this really the doctrine of limited atonement? And, and the short answer is yes, uh, and that's why I asked the question, is the efficacy of Christ's de atoning death so great that all could be saved? And we understand that while powerful enough, we understand the efficacy of it is limited to the elect alone which is, is where you're, you're going with that. And we understand that God gives the gift of faith only to the elect, and so faith is required for our salvation. Uh, why is that? Why is, is faith required for our salvation? Why, why couldn't God have just said, you know, it'd be a lot easier because these, these humans... Whom I have redeemed, these humans are so unreliable. And I, it would be far more effective if I would just not use them to share the gospel. Not use them to pray for the lost and dying. Not use them to preach the gospel. Not use them to carry the, the great commission under the ends of the world. It would be a lot easier if I wouldn't deal with these human beings why is faith required for our salvation? It's the means by which 
It is the means by which God saves us. That's exactly right. Uh, Our shorter catechism uh, talks about that that God gives the, the gift of salvation. He has chosen that to be the pathway, the way through which we are saved. None is saved apart from faith. Only those who believe are saved. And so you think about what John said in John chapter 3, uh, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And you remember from our study on the canons of Dort that John's use of the word obey there is the obedience of faith. And so there is an obedience of faith by which, by God's grace alone, that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that the unregenerate does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so wrath remains upon them. And so God has chosen to save us through faith. And then the catechism uses this idea of grafting, that, true, that, that we are grafted into Christ. And where might they be drawing from, uh, or he? Where might Ursinus be uh, drawing from in this language of our salvation? Probably Romans chapter 11, um, in which we read, Some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Uh, so forth and so on. And so the idea is that God has chosen uh, by His sovereign, according to His uh, sovereign purposes, the counsel of His will, He has chosen to save us in such a way that faith is required and that we may be grafted in that which was unnatural so He makes miraculously so in grafting us into Christ. But in the catechism, they use this term here, And when you read it the first time, you may, like I did, you may wonder, why do they use this expression? And it is this. Only those that are saved who through true faith. And so the question, and it's the next question in the catechism, is what what is that? What is that? And I, I think it's a good question to add. Why would they make that distinction? Why would they make the distinction of true faith? In other words, this is what, where my mind goes. I'm like, well, faith is faith, right? So, so you, why did, would you add this, uh, add, add this to it? And I'm, I'm playing somewhat the devil's advocate here. Uh, as, as you know, it was... Um, Good, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was famous for the expression of, of saying true truth, and, and, uh, which is an intentional redundancy that he used often to talk about what really, really, really is truth according to God. But here they use the expression true faith. What is true faith? Well, let's look at the answer and then we'll discuss it. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation, 
These are gifts of sheer grace, granted solely by Christ's merit. Isn't that a great answer? There's so much there as to what they're saying. And, and what I want us to do is I want us to, to just break this down. But before we do, before we break it down, I want to go back to my question of, and this is not on your handout, why would it be necessary to say true faith instead of just faith? Why, may, why would it be necessary to make that distinction? Yeah, that's a great distinction. And, and we run into this all the time, right? In fact, I run into this all the time as a, as a pastor. In our culture, somehow, and I think this is just a huge ball dropped by the evangelical culture, is that, that I'll encounter this, that the idea that somehow, if I can convince you that there's just a God, that somehow, well, then you're saved. There's a billboard I see on I-40. There's proof there is a God. And there's a baby on there. And I'm like, well, that's sweet. But the Bible says only a fool believes in his heart there is no God. In fact, study, statistically, we're told that the, the number of people, Christian, pagan, whatever religion, that believe there is no God is minusculely small. So we're not really trying to convince someone there's a God, but many people, as J.D. said, equate that with saving faith. What else? Why else would they, they say true faith rather than just saying faith? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, e even the demons believe. True faith is believing what faith is genuinely That's right. I mean, I evidence my faith by doing something. By living it out. Yeah, my faith is justified by virtue of, of how I'm living my life. Right. What else? Yeah, yeah, true faith according to God's Word, not my definition of faith, right? Yeah, J.J.? Okay, a demonstrable faith that, that you can actually witness. That's a great, that's a great point. I had uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine recommended a, a secular book to me on the creative arts, and, and it, it's sort of out of my genre, but I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll read it because uh, it's, it's, it's a highly... Uh, you know, best-selling kind of, of book. And so I opened it up, and I'm, I'm a fourth of the way in, and, and, and this guy is talking about the, his, his faith, and his faith is founded on nothing other than the mystic experiences of his own noggin. And I, I'm like, that is not real, true faith. Our faith rests on the reality of Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, and our faith goes beyond just believing that Jesus existed, but what? That He did, in fact, die for my sins. That He was, in fact, resurrected that I might have life. That my whole being, everything within me, trusts in that central fact. That's it. That's the primary aspect of my life and your life. Everything else is a far, 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 really far second, right? That's it. And, and so, by saying true faith, it's calling our attention to this is the real deal. Now, 
I'll also add this. I thought somebody would bring this up. There is also, because they are, li- they are living as Protestants in a land that was primarily occupied by Roman Catholics, this is probably also a reference back to it must be true faith, not what the Roman Catholic Church describes as faith or defines as it. So, so this is probably rooted in history. This is probably a pushback against that. Not that Roman Catholics can't be truly saved, but the Roman Catholic's definition of faith is very different from a Protestant understanding of faith. Well, let's look at this uh, even more. Who decides what true faith is or is not? Does the guy that wrote that book that I, I was reading? Is, is, is it his decision? Is it your personal decision? Who decides what true faith is or is not? You, you, I'm like, everybody should get this. If not, I quit as the teacher. God. That's right. Everybody. Every child in Sunday school. Over the, you know, everybody's got that, right? That's the gimme answer. Here's another gimme answer. Where do we go to find this true faith defined? The Bible. Thank you. Everybody got that one too, right? But if you think about this, how far different this is than the majority of the unbelievers or nominal churchgoers that we know personally and what they believe. Faith, well, many believe it's, it's very personal. It's, it's, it's what I understand faith to, faith to me, they might introduce the, the, the response, is X, Y, Z, right? That, that's always disturbing to me. Like, don't really care if it's up to you or not. Don't even want to hear your opinion. I do want to know what God says. And I do want to go to His Word because it's God's Word that defines what true saving faith is. What it is and what it is not. And again, as, as Rusty uh, referenced earlier uh, in James, he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Thirdly, what are the listed characteristics of this true faith? In other words, I want you to look at the answer that is given, and I want you to tell me, based on that answer, because I believe this, the, the answer is uh, rooted in Scripture, and I have plenty of Scripture references here on your handout to, uh, to support that, but what are the listed characteristics of this true faith? Well, one, while you're thinking, is sure knowledge. What does that mean? What do we mean as Christians by sure knowledge? Sure conveying confidence, right? So what do we mean by that? That's, that's exactly right. So we, we as Christians, um, what we understand to be saving faith is remarkably narrow from a worldly sense, right? Uh, we, we, we go to the Word. The Word tells us who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what we receive through the gift of faith in Him, so forth and so on. There is a confidence in what we know. Secondly, as you're thinking. Uh, 
wholehearted trust. So we look to God's Word and we are confident in what God's Word tells us regarding the the gospel. And then secondly, we wholeheartedly, with all of our, our being, we trust in what God's Word has said regarding this gospel. You think about what Jesus said, he said, This is eternal life, that they, know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And as Jesus is testifying of Himself. He's testifying that no one comes to the Father but through Christ, through Christ alone. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Me. It's quite exclusive, but it must be known. And so, uh, again, to, to, to go back again, it's, it's not what I feel, nor is it experiential. I have a confident experience. No, that's not what we believe. We believe that Scripture is quite clear about the gospel. And because it is quite clear about the gospel, then we look and we look to that alone. Regardless of experience, we look to the knowledge of it and... It's not, as J.D. said uh, just a minute ago, it's not intellectual assent. It's not just that, you know, well, okay, I get it. I understand what the gospel is. No, that's, that, that's not saving faith. That's not true faith. It is a wholehearted trust in that confident knowledge. And so that is, those are the characteristics. And again, just a couple of, of verses I have on, on your handout. Um, you see here, if faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, uh, so forth and so on. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. And then uh, the writer of Hebrews carries that on to evidence of faith through going all the way back to the patriarchs and carrying it into the New Testament era. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, Uh, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 10.10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What Paul's doing in Romans chapter 10, in addition to quoting from the Old Testament, is he's showing us that it is all of us. It is a complete and total trust in what the Word says about Christ. And so we believe. And you say, wow, that, that sounds like a lot. Uh, that sounds pretty heavy. How in the world could anybody truly do that? Um, well, we can't. We can't do it on our own. And that's sort of what Jesus was getting at in His conversation with Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus, you, 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 you don't get it. Now, let me explain to you how the Holy Spirit works. And it is only through the Holy Spirit <clears throat> who creates in me, who opens my eyes to see Christ and Him crucified, that shows me, uh, as our shorter catechism says, is that it uh, enables me to see my sin and misery, and then to see the knowledge in Christ, and enables me more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. All of this the Holy Spirit provides and the Holy Spirit creates in me. Yeah, unto salvation. That's exactly right. That's right. And so it's the Holy Spirit 
who is at work in us, doing the very thing that is impossible. Again, that's the whole idea of regeneration, of being born again. It is impossible. Nicodemus says, are you kidding me? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I can't go back into my mother's womb. Oh, you're right. You're halfway there, (laughs) right? You can't. You cannot do it. But the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes that enables us to see Christ and Him crucified. I love uh, the way that it's uh, expressed in Acts chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And there are other expressions of that as well, but I love, love that one. It's, it's this idea that, you know, she was a devout woman, perhaps in the synagogue every Sunday. There were many noble things about her, but it was not until the Lord opened her heart. It was not until the Holy Spirit worked miraculously that she came to true saving faith in Christ. And then finally, or not finally actually, uh, no, not finally. Um, What does God grant? I'm referencing back to the answer. What does God grant to all who believe? And there's there's three answers I'm I'm looking here, uh, looking for here based on uh, the answer. What are or rather, what does God grant to all who believe? Forgiveness of sins? Well, true, yeah. Go ahead. Eternal righteousness and salvation. That's right. So God, God grants to all forgiveness of sins. We are, by virtue of that, of course, uh, adopted into uh, the number Uh, Eternal righteousness. That is that the righteous, you heard me say it in my sermon last Sunday, is that we are justified as righteous. We are as righteous today as we will be on judgment day. Because today we stand in the righteousness of Christ. So also on judgment day we will stand in the righteousness of Christ. To to think or to imply anything different is, is to not fully understand the complete and total righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone and salvation. And again, when the Bible uses salvation, uh, it is using it in a, a often in a narrow sense, but also in a total sense. And so we think about if someone says, are you saved? Well, oftentimes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say yes, but the rest of that is, is what does someone mean by that? Well, typically in, in evangelical nomenclature, what they mean is justified, right? Are you justified as, as righteous in Christ? Are you adopted into the number? Are you being sanctified by the Holy Spirit? But we also understand that our salvation is finally complete at the final resurrection, the final consummation where our soul is united with our glorified body and we are resurrected to glory uh, and eternal righteousness. What kind of gifts are these? What kind of gifts 
are these that God gives? This forgiveness of sin, eternal righteousness, and salvation. Don't you love this expression? Sheer grace. It's one of my favorite expressions in the Heidelberg Catechism. Sheer grace. Now, pause there for just a second. You would say, okay, kind of like true faith. Why are they adding sheer grace here? Uh, Isn't grace grace? And just in terms of of historical background, so the understanding of what Protestants uh, understand as Saving grace and what Roman Catholics believe as grace are two different things. And so it's probably adding here the word sheer here to emphasize what came out of the Reformation. But neither here nor there, it's still a beautiful expression. What is meant by sheer grace? Yeah, and you would say, well, that's a redundancy. And we would say, amen. Right? It is, it is another way of saying it. It is grace and grace alone. And so God bestows these gifts upon us by sheer grace, upon whose merit are they granted? This is another one that you have to get this. So... Christ and Christ alone. There's no merit in what I do. We're the uh, <clears throat> elders and I are uh, doing a, a reading through uh, Calvin's Institutes uh, this year, and so I put together this little reading plan uh, that where you you read you know X number of pages a, a week, and by the end, by the time you get to December, you've read through all of it, and and they're loving it. Kind of. Um, and, and at times, Calvin can, uh, uh, well, you know, he was an intellectual, and, and so he can be a bit much. Um, but in his second chapter, which is where we have been uh, parked at here for the last uh, couple of weeks, Calvin really drives home this emphasis that it is not by any merit of our own. And he even goes into, and he does a wonderful job in the first part of his second chapter at talking about what you and I would call common grace, and he doesn't call it that, uh, but, but the, the grace is bestowed on unbelievers. And, and Calvin was one of the great humanists. And so as a humanist, he had a high regard for the languages and Greek philosophy and so forth and so on. And as a humanist, he, he, he will spend some time talking about how blessed we are to have benefited from this wisdom that came down from Aristotle and other Greek philosophers. And and you're going, where are you going with this, Calvin? And then he finally gets there and says, but despite what a blessing it is and how God has blessed humanity by His common grace, it's nothing but filthy rags. But for the saving grace, the atoning merit of Christ... They are not saved. Though there are benefits here and there, there is only saving faith in the perfect merit, the satisfactory merits of Christ and Christ alone. And so again, and we understand this, of course, this is the testimony of Scripture. I mean, you you think about, and I quote it in my sermons frequently, Ephesians chapter 2, 
where uh, Paul is, is saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what I love about Ephesians chapter 2, it's like Paul's going, I wonder how many different ways I can say that. Hmm. Well, here's how I want I'm going to do. You're saved by grace, rather by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all of that Paul bottles up in this truth that there's nothing good in us that would merit salvation but for the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. All right, we've got a little bit of time and two short questions. Question number 22, what then must a Christian believe? You wanted to know? Here it is. (laughs) All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our universal and undisputed Christian faith. Now, this is very contrary to, I would imagine, where you thought the Heidelberg Catechism was going. Like, what? Why why not just give me the answer and give me some some proof text? Well, we're going to go into that in the coming weeks. But for right now, let's understand a couple of words that they use here before we see the obvious answer in 23. First of all, what do they mean by universal? What do they mean by universal? And incidentally, and I know I would say all if not, most of you know this. But when we recite the Apostles' Creed and we use the word Catholic, you understand that that word, small c, means universal. Right? So, whoop, that's not right. Universal. Right? Why do they use the word Universal. Why is that important? Well, could be, could be, although the Roman Catholics subscribe to uh, the Apostles' Creed. What else? Why the word universal? The, the, the Christian faith is the Christian faith. That's it. There's, there's, no, um, there, there's no, well, that, that, that's the, the Greek Orthodox religion, or that's the... That's the, that's the. Now, this is not to say that there are not uh, denominations, there are not varieties, and so forth and so on. I'm not saying that, and, and if we have time in the coming weeks, we'll get into that. But the main point that it's describing here is there is only one Christian faith, and it has essential understanding. There are these essential things that we must believe. And so, secondly, they use the word undisputed. Why undisputed? True. It's rooted, it's rooted in Scripture, not brought in by tradition or whatever the case is, right? Why else? Why undisputed? Is it, does that mean that someone could not dispute the Apostles' Creed? Sure, anybody can do what they, they want to. But the idea is, is that it is universal. It is the essence of what Christianity is. And it is accepted by all true Christians. That this is the essence of what we believe. 
Now, there, there is criticism of the way that the Heidelberg Catechism states this, uh, and I, I personally think the Westminster Standards do a better job at crafting the language regarding this. Uh, in fact, uh, you don't see the, the uh, Apostles' Creed show up in the shorter catechism. Uh, you see it come into the larger catechism. But nevertheless, this is healthy for us to look at the essence of what Christian teaching is and what is it, or as they use it here, what are these articles? Answer? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, so forth and so on. The Apostles' Creed. And so what they're arguing here is that what we have in the historic Apostles' Creed teaches the essence of what we believe as Christians. And that's what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. Uh, so I think this will be valuable to you, uh, especially since the Apostles' Creed is one of the creeds that we consistently use in our liturgy. And uh, many of you may wonder, well, what exactly do we mean by that as Protestants in reciting this? Well, we're going to go into that uh, in the different clauses or articles as they describe it here. Let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for the Christian faith, the truth the true faith, that it is by sheer grace that we are saved in Christ alone. And we thank You that Your Word is clear, that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We thank You that it is not based on our merits of what we have done, for we can earn nothing. But in Christ, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection... He who is ascended and seated at your right hand, who intercedes for us even in this second. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for saving faith, which you have given to us in Christ alone. We pray now that you would prepare our hearts for worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.